Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Forrest. And this is The Crosscut, a podcast that contextualizes the news of the day with the story, themes, and motifs of a treasured or vintage piece of cinema. This jacket is vintage. If you had <laughs> if you had ripped this, I would whatever I think what he says. Sock your uh, nose. Sock your nose. That's right. Yes. There you go. <laughs> uh yeah. So so today we are talking about uh one of my favorite topics, but also one of one of the things in life that depresses me, which is uh, the presence and slowly uh, <laughs> absence of physical media. Um, and uh, to celebrate that, we watched a movie that is really in deference to not just a physical media, uh, in this case, records, but also like just the culture that comes along with having some, you know, shared commonality, some like joy in, in uh, you know, this sort of nature of things that we touch and, 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 you know, deal with. So, uh, yeah, we're talking about high fidelity. Yeah, absolutely. And not only that, but we brought in, uh, a return guest host who has to, to the best of my knowledge, an affinity for both physical media and also the film high fidelity, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. And, and us hopefully, right. Uh, Devin Landon is back. Yay! <laughs> one could say I have a high fidelity for this podcast. One shouldn't, <laughs> but one could. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it, fortunately, we will be releasing this podcast on vinyl, so that will at least be helpful for everyone. <laughs> Not DVD. <laughs> I only listen to podcasts that have been mailed to my house via vinyl, so that's good. Uh, well, yes. So, uh, Devin, we, we wanted to bring you in because, uh, of course you have an affinity for, uh, I'd say you have a collector's heart. You like to, to own the things that you love. That um, is true. and I, and I also think that you really uh, appreciate the film, probably have quite a, uh, history with it. I, I, we, before we started recording, you were talking about, this is one of those films that was on rotation pretty regularly for you. Did, did you own the film on DVD? I would assume. I, um, I still do. It, I yeah. could show you right here but it wouldn't matter because it's a podcast but it is in the room with me right now uh my my dvd of high fidelity that i think i got i mean the movie came out in 2000 so i think i've had this dvd for like 20 years at this point yeah yeah i think for me it was very similar where um it was in 2000 i was a sophomore in high school and i think that was when i started working uh during summers and so what i would do is i would work and i'd make seven, $800 through the course of the summer, whatever it was working minimum wage at Dairy Queen. And then I, at the end of the summer, I would go and spend it all on movies and music. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> I would buy CDs, I would buy DVDs. And that was the end uh, of, of all of the money. <laughs> there was no savings. There was no smart purchases. It was just, you know, pop culture. Because where else were you going to get it? You couldn't stream it for free. You no. had to spend the money. I could not tell, I couldn't call TNT and be like, please play that one movie that I really like. Right. I'm trying to remember the first time I saw this film. I don't, I, I don't think it was in high school. Um, it, I, I think almost certainly I was in college and it was not in a theater. It was, I think, I mean, it just, it was like one of those things that I think you just watched in college I, I and think then I purchased I, it. Yeah. I, I honestly think there were just like a group of people in high school who really liked movies and it was just always like, have you seen this? And then if you hadn't, you had to go buy it and watch it. And then you would come up with something that they hadn't seen. And you would just tell people about it. Like, Were those people in the AV club? We didn't have an AV club. 
Weren't you in the AV club? I don't know what that means. I, we didn't have an AV club. We just had people who knew how to put like VCRs <laughs> together. Like it was, it wasn't a club. It was just occasionally <laughs> they, just... they picked the nerd out of the class and said, hook this up for me. And that's it. <laughs> but the other thing you could do just saying at the time, if they if you're like, this is a movie you really should see, let me lend you this DVD. Because right. Yes. Just hand you this physical <clears throat> thing. You can go home and watch it and then give it back to me, which was yeah. a wonderful thing. It was, it was a great experience. Uh, it was uh, very cost effective <laughs> because uh, I, I think I'm trying to think of the most shared DVDs of the era uh, for for me. Number one with a bullet was probably Fight Club. Sure. Uh, number two was probably surprisingly enough Amelie. Okay. Um, and then I would say High Fidelity was up there, as was uh, Run Lola Run. Okay. Well, those first three, not run the little run. I have in DVD in that corner, all three of those. <laughs> um, I, I remember, I remember the first DVD I ever watched after I got a computer that could play DVDs and could watch it on the computer was Blade. And then yes. the first one I owned was The Matrix, which I think was a lot of people at that time. was a lot of people's first, yep. First DVD. Because it was designed to be watched on DVD. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, there was like an like uh, a sort of interactive experience or something was that the, yeah there was a whole yeah. thing and if you watched it on your computer it would take you to the website which also yep. was very new and exciting in 1999 so <laughs> yeah, yeah uh so blade was one of my first ones so was uh um sphere sure the the michael crichton uh film with i think samuel jackson and sharon stone and uh what's his and, face uh, um doesn't uh, i'm walking here yeah there you go Dustin Hoffman. um yeah. And then uh, Austin Powers. Uh, Austin Powers was a big one. Yeah. Any? How about you, sweetheart? I mean, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I don't know. I think that my dad was like very into the idea of a DVD player. So I want to say that he ended up getting a dual uh, VHS DVD player when it it first first came out. And it was something like ridiculous, like $800, something Uh insane for the cost of it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And we had like a whole system. Um, and I, I don't recall what the DVDs were, but like we were a big rental family. So, I mean, we, we, we literally, I think had set some kind of a record at our local blockbuster because we were so, um, consistent about going in every Friday and we would all get to choose what movies or DVDs eventually that we wanted to rent. So I don't know that we owned a lot. Yeah. I, I would, I would do the thing where it's like you you rent something at Blockbuster and you're like, oh, when this one goes in like the bargain bin at Blockbuster because like the <laughs> like the DVD's been rented too many times. Right. I, I got this one. I'm I'm buying it. This, this, this is this is a five dollar special when it's yep. when it's time. Yeah. I also yeah. One of my favorite five dollar specials was um, an American President and Dave double disc set. Oh, <laughs> wow. Well, that's that's a combo. That's a double feature. Um, mm-hmm. We were talking also about the. The, the being in college and, and watching this stuff. And at the time we all were in college, like you brought your DVD collection to college, either yep. mm-hmm. in a case logic, or if you were really fancy about it, you had a tower and you had a thing. And I, I, um, I always remember talking about the, the most popular movies at the time. There are four friends of mine lived in a quad room together and they were all movie fans. So there were just a ton of DVDs in there including 
I think four, maybe three, but at least three copies of Garden State. That was a very <laughs> yes. important DVD that they needed to have. Yep. Yeah. We had that. Garden State. Um, I'm trying to think. I, Chasing Amy was another one. Oh, yeah. That, and Clerks. I don't think I had Clerks for whatever reason, but um, like what other ones? I had Breakfast at Tiffany's, which aside from the one part, well, it's a couple parts. But aside from the one thing I really love. Aside from like 40% of that movie. <laughs> great, great movie. <laughs> um, Forrest, you mentioned Clerks and, and Chasing Amy. And I remember, because I'm sure we'll talk about this, but one of the great things about DVDs was if you were really a film nerd, you could watch director's commentary and yes. all of that yeah. sort of thing. And I remember, um, I think it was Clerks. It may have been Mallrats. It was one of them. They actually did the commentary for the laser disc and you oh. can hear kevin smith saying fuck dvd that's not going to be a thing because he was invested <laughs> in laser disc at the time sure. he really thought that was i'm pretty sure it was for chasing amy i because okay. i just i recall that yeah that's he was hilarious. really invested he was really invested in laser disc and you and i were talking about this for us where i was just like yeah. obviously the smaller thing that's not yeah. the size of a of a vinyl record is going to be the thing that catches on. I don't know who was like, you know what? What would be better than a, a, a little tiny movie disc? It's yeah. a giant one. What if movie, but big? Yeah. I also yeah. think you're right that it was Chasing Amy because I also uh, remember him being really mean to Reese Witherspoon in that director's <laughs> commentary <laughs> because she apparently had something to say about mall rats. <laughs> so. Fair enough. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So just these these are the things that the drama from like 1998 that gets stuck in my head. Sure, yeah. Right. Well, before uh, before we get too much into the 90s and 2000s, uh, which I'm sure we will continue to do, let's go ahead and kick the episode off with a little bit of the news, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. This week. Reported in Variety News, Best Buy is checking out of the DVD business. Thank you for that, Variety. I appreciate the pun. Uh, the consumer electronics retailer will phase out sales of DVDs and Blu-ray discs both in-store and online in early 2024, according to industry sources familiar with the company's plans. Best Buy made the initial decision to end DVD sales nine months ago, and Best Buy confirmed on Friday that it is ending those sales, quote, to state the obvious... The way we watch movies and TV shows is much different today than it was decades ago. Making this change gives us more space and opportunity to bring customers new and innovative tech for them to explore, discover, and enjoy. So that's right, ladies and gentlemen, where you used to find DVD racks at Best Buy, you will now find another kind of toaster or maybe a washing machine. I don't, who knows? I, I'm really trying to rack my brain about what they're going to put in all that extra space. The only other thing I buy from Best Buy is like that we've, we've bought like appliances. Yes. Yeah. We bought TVs. We bought our refrigerator and that's kind of it. And I think that's where and they're headed. Like they're, they're really just going to be like a home goods store. And they, it doesn't even take up that much space now. I was in a Best yeah. Buy a couple of weeks ago and it's, it, I mean, at one point it was shelf after shelf and it, it's, it's kind of shunted off in the corner already. Yeah, it's it's very limited and it's only I think mostly new releases and occasionally like some big like sort of perennial hits. Like you may get like, you know, some Christmas movies at Christmas, you may see like 
the Fox, you know, large collections or whatever, but like all of the star Wars, I'm sure are still there, but, um, that's it. Like there's, there is no real, uh, cultivated, you know, physical media experience, even today, even when they still sell them. Now, the one thing I will say though, is if you're online at bestbuy.com, it's one of these websites you guys may have heard of. Um, they will sell like the exclusive steel books. So that, that was nice. Like you can get like a 4k, I think, um, army of darkness and stuff in a steel book. Um, but they're, they're foregoing that business, uh, moving into next year. Uh, it just makes me sad every time. <laughs> well, not only that, this is probably also makes you sad. Uh, this move comes as of course, Netflix, uh, 25 years after launching its pioneering DVD by mail service shipped out its last DVDs to customers on September the 29th. Um, and of course let them keep their final discs if they chose to Devin, did you keep your final disc? I did. So yes, I have three. Cause I was still at a three at a time plan. Sure. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and not only that, apparently I had heard this, that they were going to just do like a going out of business. Like here's 10 DVDs from your queue. Apparently that did have to happen, but you had to opt in. Uh, and I uh... did not know that until I went so far as to rearrange my queue to get like the stuff that is like that is not streaming anywhere yeah. at the top, like shortcuts by Robert Altman, right? Like love, can't love find Altman, it yeah. anywhere, but I had it on the list and then did not know that. Uh, and so, yeah, so I'm stuck with the three that I have, which is uh, Barry Lyndon. Um, okay. Kubrick. Yep. Yeah. The English patient, uh, which I still have a winner for best picture. Yeah. And one other one, I, I'll, I'll I'll go over and look in a second, but I forget what it is. Well, uh, we, we will wait uh, on bated breath. But <laughs> while we wait for that, uh, this this also leaves only three remaining retailers as the predominant DVD and Blu-ray salespeople in the world. Uh, those are Walmart, Amazon, and Target, who continue to sell uh, DVDs and Blu-rays. Oh, I thought that you... Okay, I thought Target was on the list. Yeah, there are rumors that Target mm. will also be shunting their DVD sales as well. Which, again, is wild because, I mean, they kind of have them on end caps throughout the store. And I feel like, I mean, Target is where I go to buy kind of everything. But if I were going to buy a DVD, Target is definitely the top of the list yeah. of places Target, I would think about. Target will not stop selling DVDs at least until after Taylor Swift's Era Tour DVD comes out. Mm -hmm. Um, that may be their last one, but they will not, uh, stop the process until then. And then it'll be the end of an era. Hmm. You know it all too well. <laughs> uh, that's all. That's the only, uh, Taylor Swift joke I think I have in my arsenal. So, and then that's because it's just we, a blank space. Hey, there you go. They, <laughs> they, they made that joke on the celebrity jeopardy episode that we watched last night. So that's why I, I got one. <laughs> So the, the one thing that I do want to mention, because I do think this is really funny, um, there is still a rental market for DVDs. Um, it is predominantly headed up by a company named Redbox, which everybody listening to this has probably seen at their local grocery store. <laughs> Did who Do you know who owns Redbox, the company? I, um, I don't, but I, so I do know a guy from college <laughs> who, he was like an early investor in Redbox. 
And <laughs> he's just kind of a goofy dude. And like every time he was like coming over to the house or like talking to somebody that he knew, he'd be like, oh, I just had to go stop by the red box. Got to go pick up some stuff from Redbox. And he was just like constantly telling people, like trying to incept them on using Redbox because he had a lot of money invested in it. Yeah, that's code word for drugs, baby. He was buying drugs. Uh, <laughs> I mean, not um, not wrong knowing this guy also. Uh, the company that owns Redbox is Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment. Oh, okay. Yeah. The people that make all those books? Correct. Yes. I wish that your listeners could see the face that both Jesse and I made when you said that. <laughs> we were probably making a similar face. It's like, how is that a company, much less a company that owns one of the largest DVD rental businesses in the country? Uh, they also own the streaming platform Crackle, for what that's worth, but which really I think used to be Sony, but yeah, they they have a lot of faith based content, and you got to put that out somewhere. So, um, just to uh. j- to put a little bit of perspective on. Uh, DVD sales and what has sort of happened to them over the course of the last few years. Um, U.S. physical media revenue in the first half of 2023 had dropped by 28% compared to the same time last year. This is, uh, it, you know, not good. You typically don't want to quarter your sales in just a year. U.S. sales have dropped by 86% total between the year 2006 and 2019. So that doesn't even include pandemic data, just like the traditional old decline of a, of a media, it fell 86%. Now, it was probably artificially inflated for a while there in, in the mid-2000s um, because every single person I bought a Christmas present for, for about 10 years, I bought them a DVD of a movie that I liked that year. So <laughs> uh, I was doing a lot of work to pump those numbers up, but uh, you know, I, it's still surprising that it's, it's dropped so precipitously in just a decade. Well, I also don't think that's artificially inflated. Like it was that people were giving DVDs as gifts. You don't do that anymore, right? That's true. Was, that was part of part of the trend. I, I also looked up. I don't know if this is coming in your data, so I apologize if I'm stepping on you. Please what do. the top uh, DVD was last year and how much it sold, how much it made. Um, uh, I, my guess is it's Top Gun Maverick, Spider Man No Way Home. So this okay, is so close last year, right? For last year, yeah. For for 20, 2022 sales, um, yeah. It was it was uh, Spider Man No Way Home, and it made about nine million dollars in DVD sales, which is about four hundred and fifty thousand DVDs, which so is not a lot. That is not a lot. Yeah. Um, but another article I looked at for, with that comes from this year says it's still DVDs and Blu-ray still generating over a billion dollars in annual sales. So there is people are buying them, just not. Yeah in the same way. Yeah. So there's a, um, there's a company called Circana and a representative from the, that company has done a report recently, uh, regarding, uh, the overall sales. They said that from March, 2022 to 2023, um, overall sales was 1.34 billion. Um, that didn't include rentals, but like, you know, whatever we're, we're talking uh, a hair more for rentals. That is like, infinitesimally small compared to the amount of money that people make off of streaming services. Um, That doesn't mean like if all of a sudden HBO and Warner decided like, we're not doing streaming anymore. We're only selling DVDs. Like uh, that would boost to some level, but who knows what it is. It certainly is not going to return to 2006 levels. Uh, I was just going to say, I I have a, I have a theory. I don't know how, if, if we're getting into this now, but I have, I have a theory about where it's going. Let's save that for the end. Okay. That, yeah, that's yeah. 
Fair enough. So the other thing I wanted to mention from that Circano report is that traditional standard definition DVD sales still account for 71% of the market. So like there's this big thing that happened in the late 2000s where it's like, is it HD DVD? Is it Blu-ray? Which one's going to take the lead? Now we're at like 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray. Doesn't matter. 70% of the market is still just traditional standard definition DVD. And by the way, we watched High Fidelity. We watched it on SD. Like we just like what I had from when I was in college. And it's fine. It was totally fine. Well, you know who else uh, was feeling anxiety about the end of an era in media and mourning its passage while being uncertain about the future? And being a huge dick. (laughs) That's right. Rob Gordon, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Rob Gordon, also Rob Fleming in the book, I guess. They decided to change that for for the film uh, of the movie High Fidelity, which was a big part of why we chose this film, uh, is the, the main character. And... Yeah, is the owner of a vinyl record shop in Chicago in the, I guess, late 90s. Yeah, and uh, and I think one of the things that I, I liked most about like this film as a point of conversation for this topic is at the time this film was released, 2000s, like vinyl was already on the decline, right? It was like already out, basically. But there was the collector's mentality. There was like the community aspect of this. There's a point in the um, in the movie where he says, I get by because the people make a special effort to shop here. Mostly mm-hmm. lonely men, <laughs> I think is what he says. And it's like, uh, it's like, yeah, that's that's where the medium is sort of, you know, uh, found itself in this film. And I think that's an interesting way to parallel where we're starting to see like Blu-ray physical culture end up. As a, right, as a it, guy who's buying a lot of Blu-rays now, <laughs> I, I kind of feel the the connection. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is that back in the 90s, the way that this character was written by Nick Hornby, the, the author of the book, um, and this was in uh, a retrospective of the film that he did um, just a few years ago when the TV reboot came out. He was talking about how he wrote Rob Gordon or Rob Fleming in the novel um, as somebody who was basically just, I mean, really kind of clinging on to this, this previous way of life and really just thinking that vinyl was going away forever. And then ironically, you know, now looking back on it in 2020, when this article was written, uh, you know, we, we have the end of a lot of mega stores like borders and Virgin records. And instead you have small shops. The only people that really sell, uh, physical media in a lot of places are these sort of small shops that, I mean, they're, they're modest, but they do sell vinyl records. Yeah. And sales of vinyl records now in 2023 are higher than they were in 2000. The, yeah. The, you, you, obviously, it's because it is that collector mentality because no one's buying CDs as much. Although the kids today are yeah. buying cassettes. Yep. And I don't <laughs> get why, but I guess that means I'm old. But these kids today like cassettes. But yeah, but so what's ironic is he thought it was the end of an era, but it was just, I mean, they're not still sales the way they were in the seventies or something, but people are buying more records now than they were 23 years ago. Vinyl sales have actually been increasing for 17 years in a row. So they almost died out in the two thousands, 
But then for the last 17 years, they've been steadily increasing year over year. And and that's really kind of incredible, um, especially because one of our first episodes on this podcast was talking to our friend Michael Eads about how difficult it is to press right. vinyl records. There's like one company in the world that owns the secret sauce for how to make the actual like physical material that makes records. It's kind of crazy. I think going back to what you were saying, Devin, about like why kids would want uh, cassette tapes, I think that there's something to be said about not being able to like skip through music and it kind of forces you to slow down. I think in a way that a lot of kids today, I feel so old saying that. Um, Kids today. Yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the youths um, are really into those like old uh, Panasonic or yeah, cameras, like the old digital cameras that you, you don't have really a screen or a lot of control and it's, it's capturing something that like sort of lets go of the control and forces you to sort of live in a, a different kind of way. Yeah. There definitely is a trend towards, uh, not fully unplugging, but, but sort of appreciating a more analog life among among the youths when you said that they're going back to for some reason i was sure you're going to say they're going back to hip clips where you could listen to 30 <laughs> seconds of a britney spears mp3 i i do remember hip clips but i was thinking they're going back to buying uh one dollar ringtones that's the yes with a frog in the commercial for some reason <laughs> um, uh, man we were we were so ripped off <laughs> This but is why millennials I have never, no savings. We spent so many, so much money on ringtones. I never bought a ringtone. No, no, I, no never. Absolutely not. Neither did I. Point of pride. <laughs> um, but I, I think going back to, uh, Jesse, what you're saying about Nick Hornby and, and how he sort of saw the character. Right, Nick Horn, I, for better, for worse, used to, I don't know if I still should, describe myself as a Nick Hornby protagonist. Um, if you look at, like, this series of his books, because he also, the other ones that were adapted into movies were Fever Pitch and About a Boy. And he always writes this protagonist as this overgrown man-child who has something bordering on an obsession with a childish pastime, right? They, 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 there's a lot of that in his right. in his work. Um, and and so Rob, but Rob Gordon, I think, even though he wasn't the first one, is sort of the er- Nick Hornby character, I think, like he's he's the the template. Fever Pitch was Drew Barrymore and uh, Jimmy Fallon. Uh, Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, was the American one. There was a British one because he originally wrote about. He's British, so he originally wrote about a soccer team, um, and it starred Colin <sighs> Firth. But then they made an American remake, and just coincidentally, pitch can mean soccer field or throwing yep. a baseball, so it worked. I had that. I was like, oh, pitch, like like. Uh, like you're running on some grass. Yeah. Anyway, but my point was sort of like knowing how Nick Hornby writes and that his characters are these just like stunted men. Um, that's Rob Gordon. He is he is such I, I think he's supposed to be 30, right? In the in the movie. 34, I think. I think. Yeah. 34. Well, I, I think I think John Cusack is 34 in the movie. Um, whether the character is, I don't know, but it's they're 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 similarly aged correct yeah. yeah so i recall um, the i recall 34 was was what they said uh okay, cool. when we watched it this past time but so i'm i'm interested to hear your guys thought, and maybe especially forrest as you know a dude who i will not say is a stunted you're an adult you have a wife and kids in a house um uh unlike me but i remember watching this movie when i was 19 and 
feeling like Rob Gordon was aspirational. I loved how he, you know, just did what he wanted and didn't buy into the system. And like, he, he loved the things he loved and, you know, got to hang out with Marie DeSalle and, uh, and, and on all this stuff. And then being rewatching it again, you know, in my late twenties, early thirties, thinking like, ah, now I'm a little like worried about maybe I might turn into this guy. And then watching it, I again in my early forties, being like, he's a jerk. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I'm wondering if you had a similar progression, an arc of your of his his view of maleness, which I think is very important to this movie. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like a lot of the films that we watched recently for this podcast have been a real indictment of masculinity in one way or another. <laughs> um, and, and this continues that trend. Um, what I will say is when I was a kid and watched this, I, I think I definitely had some more positive feelings towards the towards Rob than I did now. Predominantly, I think that's just part of the storytelling, right? He is not only the protagonist of the story, but he is given the privilege to speak directly to the audience. So if he can break the fourth wall, he provides you with the context to, to sort of prevail his own character, right? He, like he can explain why things work or don't work, right? He's the, the absolutely arbiter of truth in this narrative. Um, and so I think that what you find is like some of the worst things that he does, he kind of gets away with because he can explain them to you in a way that sort of, you know, makes you feel less bad about them. What I will and say about that is that we're, John, Cusack. John Cusack is very charming. Yes. And, and, right. and he's got charisma. What I will say is, is for me personally, the, the moment, there's a moment in the movie where his sister, or I'm sorry, uh, John Cusack's character <laughs> comes in and calls him a fucking asshole. And she, he says, uh, Laura told her somewhere between one and four things. Yeah, you know, the first one was like borrowed some money. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. Uh, and the second one was like thought about seeing other people. It's like fine, you know, whatever. And he explains all of these things away pretty reasonably. And then at the very end, it's like, and she, you know, she told her that I had slept with someone else, which I did. And I'm like, well, okay, then fuck off. <laughs> like, like at that point, even as a young me, even as a young me, I was just like, that's a thing that like, that's the inciting incident, motherfucker. Like, like you can't talk your way out of that. You fucked up. Like, Which number four pretty much directly led to her terminating yes. pregnancy. Exactly. And so uh, I, I think like what I, what I, it was that point where I turned on the character in the movie, even when I was like 19 or however old when I saw this, I just was like very um, predisposed to dislike people who cheated on people. And so sure. once that was a thing that became clear, I was like, well, eat, uh, eat shit, buddy. At the end, by the end of the movie, he like sort of has a redemption arc, very short lived. Like I didn't realize uh, how quick it happened in the movie until we watched it this time. It's like, oh, the last 16 minutes of the movie is the redemption arc. That's it. <laughs> uh, but, you and know, within they, that, he's still take he's still uh, making a tape for that girl at the reader. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, so I, I actually... I mean, I think had a very similar um, feeling about this film to to you, Devin, where when I first watched this, not that like I was like, oh, I want to be this guy, but I was like, oh, this guy is like, he's hot, you know, and like he's he's sensitive 
and he's smart and he's into music and he's kind of cool, but he's also self-effacing and he's nerdy and like all the things. And, and he's and read books you like The Marie- Unbearable Lightness of Being and Love right. Cholera, which are about yeah. Right. That's, you, that's the big You takeaway. were Marita Sal. That's how that's I the, was every the, girl the, that he tricked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tricked is a good word to use there, right? Because yeah. this guy very much does exist, especially when you're in your 20s and he's charming and knowledgeable mm-hmm. about cool stuff and has no, not no depth, but no self awareness. Fully, fully self involved. And yeah, I right. think that. I think that like that, you know, I, so I was able to, um, maybe gloss past that list of things that he did because he sort of says like, I may or may not have. And like the, the, the very first thing he lists is may or may not have slept with someone else. That's like the very first thing he lists. He goes, well, she was pregnant and he just like lists these other things and he sort of like brushes past. I was like, well, he may or may not have, I guess maybe he did it. I don't know. Um, and then he's like, he ends it with like, oh, and I borrowed a large sum of money as if that's the big thing. And I was like, well, that's not, that's fine. You know, it also was like um, four grand or something. It wasn't like it wasn't like a, he bought a house or something. <laughs> yeah, she's a lawyer. She can spare four grand. Um, and and then yeah, I mean, I rewatched it a few years ago, and I was just like, oh, this is not great. And then me watching it this time, I was very very upset, kind of the entire time, just like typing in all cap letters. Um, genuinely, I I don't know how I ended up walking away liking Rob Gordon. And not just hating all men after watching this movie because he paints such a bleak picture. And I just have to imagine a big part of it is we have a difference. We just have a different standard for calling out bullshit um, today in terms of like misogyny. But man, there is so much just like in just like really, really deep seated like incel energy going on with him throughout this. But also, like, yes, we we do. But also, we're older. We're in our right. you know thirties and forties, right? And like, and like, we don't need to be reminded of the romantic choices we made in our twenties um, when we didn't know any better. And so, like, right. I, 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 right, like, so I do think that there is that. But the the thing that I realized on on this rewatch that I don't think had ever crystallized for me is he is Charlie. He's Catherine Zeta Jones's character. She has more right. of like the fabulous life, but he is as fake and has with bad stories and bad friends. Like that's just a mirror, and he does he fails the mirror test. He's a dog attacking mm-hmm. himself, like um, because that's he he, he sees himself as uh, I forget her name, but Lily Taylor's character, right? The sad sack one. Yeah, like mm-hmm. he's like, oh, that could that could have been me, blah blah blah. But he does not see himself in Charlie. And he is Charlie. One of his biggest condemnations of her from that night is that she talks shit constantly. And it's like, what do you think you and your bros do in your record shop all day long? Exactly. He is just describing himself in that scene. And I did not ever realize that until I watched it at 42. Yeah. I, I, I think that it's really interesting because so much of the film is set up as like, like, how am I going to win Laura back, right? Or or what am I going to do at the end of this relationship to deal with it? And some of it's chasing after her. Some of it's, like, trying to get, to get over her. Like, there's the, you know, the meeting up with the ex-girlfriends to sort of, like, figure out what's going on there. But, like, honestly, like, not, all of that is sort of not, it's busy work, 
right? What this, this movie is not man versus environment. It's not man versus external individual. It is man versus self. Like he has to discover like that. He has been a broken human being in the way that he's engaged in relationships his entire life. He is the problem. And I don't know that he fully solves that. I think the closest we get at the end of the movie is his little like monologue um, with Laura in the restaurant where he's like, you know, I always thought like women would have, I'd be surrounded by women with like exotic underwear. And I just didn't realize like women have like just the regular underwear they wear when they're just like doing their own stuff. And it's like, wait, I'm sorry, but bro, you didn't realize that women were people. You just, mm-hmm. you just didn't think they were people. You thought they were accessories in your life. You didn't realize that they had their own thing going on when you weren't around. And it's, it literally is like, he's 34 years old and figures that out for the first time. And I'm like, part of me says that's depressing. The other part of me says, I know a lot of people who could probably watch this movie and hopefully it moves them to figure that out sooner well, rather than later. The, the, yeah. Cause I, I also, I, I don't know at what point in my life I stopped thinking that like, go talk to all your exes and, and solve your problems by making them do all the work for you. Right. I stopped thinking was a good idea, but there's <laughs> definitely a point in my life where I would have still thought that, like, I was like, yeah, this seems like a good plan. Bruce Springsteen appeared. Bruce Springsteen actually even says, like, you'll feel better, but will they feel better? And he doesn't even yeah. listen to Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. They'll feel better, maybe, but you'll feel better. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And he just brushes it off again. But there definitely was a point where I would have been like, yes, this is how I solve the problem of what's wrong with me. And I, I feel very fortunate now to at least be able to recognize like, no, that is just once again, using women as an object to do work that you don't want to do and avoid things you don't want to face. Yeah. Right. Well, so two points. So Forrest, you asked me to think or to look into what Nick Hornby was uh, thinking about when he wrote this book. And the closest I could come in my research was, I mean, he he's talked about writing this novel a lot, and you kind of hit the nail on the head a couple minutes ago, where he his impulse was to basically try to write a romantic relationship from the point of view of a guy, which he didn't feel like was really represented in novels very much at that time, and uh, and I think that's fair. Um, yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. And he, I guess, was basically trying to come at it from the perspective of writing it from a relationship that is broken that they're trying to get fixed by the end of the, of the novel or by, by mm-hmm. the end of the story. Um, and so I think that is, uh, I, I think that's, I think that's fair. And then the other thing, Devin, I was going to say is I, I definitely, um, I, I could just like picture you being like, this is a great roadmap for me in the future. Like I'm 20 or whatever, 18 years old watching this and like it's Rob Gordon. He's got to figure it out when I'm 35, I can just, you know, just call him up. And I think I definitely, had that impulse for a long time too. And now I'm just like, no, no, no. Run, run fast and run far, change your number, change your email address. Uh, Especially because you're far away to me. Yes. I mean, that's a big part of it, but also just (laughs) from like the whole past of it all. Um, But I think that Rob just, even with his like longtime girlfriend, Laura, he literally does not see her as a person with her own needs and emotional depth until he literally sees her crying at her father's funeral. 
Like that's the moment where he has an epiphany and realizes that maybe not everything is about him. Maybe she's in her early thirties. And, and as she says in the film, she just needs to get her shit together. And he's not particularly interested in that. Yeah. And I think it's also like, she gets a more active role towards the end of the film. Uh, in, in like when they sort of reunite and she's helping him plan the um, record uh, debut party thing for the kinky wizards. Um, like she takes an active role in the film where he's still being very passive and like standoffish and like not knowing what to do. This is also again, where he's sort of engaging with the, the reporter and like, Oh, I'm gonna make you a tape or whatever. Um, and he's also still being a boy who doesn't want to grow up. That's true. And yes. She, makes him do stuff which yeah i'll be honest again me in my 20s i was looking for a woman to help me do that <laughs> it's like make, make me make myself a man please yeah <laughs> be my geppetto and i don't think that that's uncommon no but like on the on the flip side of that me in my early 20s it took me until like 25 to be like oh I should not be trying to fix somebody. That's not that's not showing proof of anything. In fact, uh, the person should be fixed, and then we can like be happy together. That's you know, it's not it's not healthy for me to go in and mend a wing. Kudos, kudos to you for finding that out at twenty five because it takes people a lot longer. And and also, well, when we- I got burned at twenty five, and then I was just like, okay, I'm done. Uh, until I'm 30 and then <laughs> I'm just going to take a break for five years. I'm, I'm not going to do anything <laughs> and I'll figure yeah. it out eventually. But the, the, going back, cause I just remembered one thing when, I, cause we mentioned his past and, uh, when you said, when Forrest said, uh, you're married, I wanted to yell to Kevin Bannister, but I didn't, uh, <laughs> um, but, but also when he, uh, I forget her name, but the, the one that he like dated in in high school and who wrote notes with the pen because she's a film critic which is an unassailably cool job um allison ashmore allison ashmore yeah i thought allison ashmore married kevin bannister uh, you're right allison yep. ashmore did marry kevin bannister the other lady was oh i don't remember her name yeah uh, I, it'll come to me though she, she gets forgotten but uh but basically she's like she's like you traumatized me you led to me almost getting mm-hmm. raped you like ruined my sexual experience in college and he left and he went, this is great. Yeah. It's like, I I dumped her. Even at 19, how did I not see that he's a terrible person? I know. Penny Hardwick. Uh, Yeah. Penny Hardwick. And, and yeah, I mean, it's again, he has just this warped perception of how he's been jilted by all these women and she's the perfect example of how this this idea that he has of himself is completely off and he was the one who broke up with her and again i'm like why did i not see that he's a jerk you know john cusack is too charming yeah he's too charming to play this character and and i think that he makes you forgive so much based off like purely off of how like just sweet and nice he seems as as a person but as any good movie does, it's not about the character. It's about your interpretation of the character. This says something about you and who you are, that you believe this character was who they said they were in the film. So this is an indictment of your personality. Take that up with Stephen Frears. <laughs> Me- meanwhile, uh, I think the, the, the real 
true-hearted people see themselves in the other guys at the store. They don't see themselves in... Uh, in Yeah, if only I had the confidence uh, of a a young Jack Black singing Marvin Gaye in front of a room full of people that... You mean with Barry Jive and the Uptown Five? Um, the, the thing yeah. that I, I want, I want your younger listeners, do you have younger listeners? I want your younger listeners to realize just how much this blew up Jack Black. Yeah. This movie took Jack Black from zero to 60. Like he was a working actor. He'd been working since he was a kid. I think he was in like school ties. I know he was in Waterworld. Like he had, he was a working actor, but this movie and Tenacious D had already existed as a band and yep. had a little bit of a following, but like. This movie catapulted him far more than anyone else in the movie. Like Todd Luiso did not get the same uh, the same push. Who is not, by the way, I didn't, who is not Jonathan Slavin. And if you don't know who the two <laughs> of them are, look up Todd Luiso and Jonathan Slavin. You'll realize, oh, I don't know which ones in which movie. They clearly are going out for the same roles. But Todd Luiso is um, uh, I just blanked on the character name, not Barry, but um, Dick. Dick, yeah. Todd Luiso's dick. He's also in Jerry Maguire, but he's not the guy in Better Off Ted because that's Jonathan Slate. Right. Um, right. It, he was in an episode of House um, where he was a character who had agoraphobia. And, he, and again, he, he, he has a career. They both have careers. I'm sure they lose out on roles to each other all the time. But, but yeah, this, this movie started Jack Black's ascent into like a legitimate movie star. This was the thing that I think started him being a regular occurrence on Comedy Central uh, replays of movies. So like, what, Saving Silverman? Uh, I think he was in that. Uh, He was. He was in uh, Orange County. Orange County, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, I was like trying to pull that. Yep, that's right. He was in Orange Um, County. He was in uh, Nacho Libre, uh, mm -hmm. was was soon after this. Um, Something else I rewatched this year, by the way. Not what I remembered it. (laughs) <laughs> he yeah, and then he he made like his big push in uh king kong and then that kind of didn't turn out great from from that point he he had a fantastic career oh uh, uh school of rock was the, the right. of course the, school, the school of rock is the one and then also the holiday which is still one of the best rom-coms i think <laughs> right well also he's in the the kung fu pandas Right. So he does a lot of great voice work. Uh, most notoriously, yeah. he is now a star in our family uh, as Bowser. Right. Oh man, Peaches is uh, a big the song, song in this house. Is a hit. My my nephew, uh, well, is in fifth grade now. Was in fourth grade when that came out, and just it was it was everywhere. Yeah, it's uh, even Nova, who is two years old, will sing it. I think <laughs> I think he thinks the name of the song is Pizza. So he's just pizza, pizza, he just pizza, 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 but that's fine. You know, <laughs> yeah, hey, interpretation. Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a, a couple other things that I, I wanted to mention about uh, the sort of state of, you know, the, the decline of physical media. Um, I, I, I just wanted to talk through implications because I think those are important to think about, especially in light of some recent events that have happened in the news. Because of the implications. You know, yeah. Because of the implications. Uh, first off, you may have heard of this, but, um, anytime you are accessing something via streaming, it does not necessarily mean it is yours. It is basically a glorified rental. So long as you uh, you know pay for the streaming service, but not even that, if you are renting a physical DVD, the thing that you have at home while you have rented that DVD will remain the same. That's not necessarily the case with some of our classic cinema. Most recently Disney altered, uh, 
a scene in the film The French Connection um, to remove some of the racist language. However, that racist language was indicative of who the character Popeye Doyle, played by Gene Hackman, is. By removing it, it takes away from the film as it was intended to be perceived in the 1970s when it was made. And Um, they did that without asking anyone permit, like William Friedkin or anyone got, was taken aback by it as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so it's, it's not only the case that um, this happens with films, but even eBooks have been quote retroactively and irrevocably altered, highlighting what consumer rights experts say is a convention of digital publishing that consumers may never notice or realize they signed up for buying something digitally does not necessarily mean that it's yours. Um, Which, Which you mentioned streaming, but that's even when you like buy a movie on Amazon, which I thought we all learned over a decade ago when Bruce Willis sued Apple because he found out that he couldn't leave his iTunes collection to his kids because he technically just owned the license to listen to those songs. Um, But yeah, they can, they can remove stuff, even stuff you've bought that you think you own and don't rent. They can decide to remove it from the, from their platform for whatever reason, or as Forrest mentioned, change it. Yeah. So not like, yeah, to your point, not only can they change it, but they can remove it. Um, Screen Rant uh, has a a quote uh, from some people they interviewed saying, um, there's a fear among viewers that streamers will continue to remove content, making shows and movies completely inaccessible without the presence of physical media. Uh, We saw this recently with HBO. HBO. Uh, David Zaslav and Discovery took over that corporation and they decided to remove uh, even very popular shows like Westworld. Um, But perhaps more importantly, smaller shows uh, that were trying to find an audience, trying to build a career for the creators who made that show, they just removed them and now you can't access them anywhere. And the... They did it for a tax write-off, but it really removes a major and core element of these people's careers and their audience's ability to to watch and and enjoy their shows. And by the way, Westworld was made for HBO, and I don't know that it ever had physical release. And if it did, I'm not sure like all of it did. Um, it's you know, it, it may just be dis- it may have just disappeared right. forever. I, I think. Westworld- I mean, I think that it did have a physical release. Yeah, Westworld. I think, had a I, I, think I do recall. But there's a there's a lot of other stuff that got uh, deleted that that did not um, right and to some degree it's back to you know the the silent era where they found the the silver nitrate in film stock more valuable than keeping the film and they just said okay like this has always happened to some degree we just yeah. happened to come of age in probably the peak era of preservation because right. we were able to get that stuff. Um, but also it turns into a rights issue as well. Uh, so I, whenever I go to a Goodwill or some, some, you know, store, I always go through the DVD thing. Cause you can get a lot of great DVDs there now for like two bucks each. And there are yeah. two things that I'm always looking for. I'm looking for cocoon and I'm looking for dogma because both of those movies do not exist. No one is making the DVDs. They, they, they're right. caught up in rights struggles. And so if you did not own a copy that was already out, it cannot be streamed anywhere. It cannot be shown anywhere. The dogma specifically, Harvey Weinstein owns the rights and he's just holding on to it as because he's a bitter, bitter man and he doesn't want yeah. it to come out. But Do um, I own dogma? I might I own dogma. I think I own dogma. Yeah, I think I have it. I think I think we have it somewhere. Yeah, but, it, but there... And 
so as you mentioned, I was one of the last people, you know, the, the stalwarts on, on Netflix. Oh, I look Midnight Cowboy. You mentioned Ratso Rezo before. That oh, was yeah. One. Um, but be, I was very sad that I was leaving. I had almost 500 movies on my Netflix queue and I put them all on a letterboxed list so I could sort by their thing to see what's streaming. And I think it's only about 160 of those 500 are streaming. So yeah. the rest, and, and at least among services I have, but I have a lot of them. So like the rest are just hard to find now. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like we, when we do movies for this uh, podcast, we try to choose ones that are available on streaming if we can. Uh, but the problem is uh, so many aren't. And we just like want to be able to talk about really important movies that we think are relevant to the news of the day. And they just, they, you know, you can't do it all the time. This movie, High Fidelity, not streaming anywhere, at least not any of the services that I have on my uh, my list. But Ironically, folks, if you want to watch this film, you're going to have to go dig it out of your DVD collection. <laughs> that, yeah. Or or go to a record store that also sells DVDs. Um, couple la- uh, one last bad note. So one last uh, note that I think is is pretty indicative of where we're headed. Um, is uh, Disney has announced that uh, they will no longer be releasing theatrical content on DVDs in Australia. And they've also made that decision in many parts of Latin America as well. So mm-hmm. if you want, like you mentioned Spider-Man No Way Home as being, I mean, it's Sony, but still includes Marvel characters as being like the top DVD of a couple of years ago. Um, like th- like if, if uh, I don't know, the Marvels does super well or something, not coming to DVD in Australia. Just not going to happen. Um, they have a different DVD like co- code coding, don't they? Yeah, like you can't play it an American and, DVD. Yeah. yeah. Unless you have a region free player, but that's an, another conversation. <laughs> yeah. It it's um the the thing is I I for a long time the the problem that I think where, where this is going. So streaming's not actually that profitable. They, like they, that's part of no. this whole the strike it's it's part of they spent so much money getting subscribers but they're finding that they they killed the golden goose and the money is not that like studios wish they had dvds back because they were making a whole lot more money i mean they, they can't do that but they right. they wish that we were back in the 90s and 2000s because they were making so much more money than they ever will with streaming right but um the problem, and, and so for a long time, I thought that the, I would say the future of film is in theater exhibition and physical media, because that's the way that actually they could make money. But a friend of mine pointed out something really specific or really, really interesting, which is um, I used vinyl as an example of how it's coming back. And he was like, he's a tech savvy guy. And he's like, I could make a record player. Like, he's like, I could, it's, it's yeah. the gramophone nature of it. Like, I could put a needle, like, I know how to do that. You can't just make a DVD player. Once someone, de- once the last company decides they're not going to make the thing with the lasers that reads it and translates it, you know, into, then, then it will go away and it's not functioning the same way that a vinyl record does, which is the thing that, that is perhaps most scary because it's, th- there'll still be a trickle of these but once the last company decides they're not making the players anymore like i still i still have a ps4 i watch on that i think the ps5 you can still watch on 
But I don't yep. know if you'll be able to with the PS6. Maybe, maybe not. That's what I was going to ask is yeah. I, I don't play video games, but I assume that you could just watch DVDs. Like most people at this point just watch DVDs on their gaming console. That's a big, that's a big part of it. Um, there are, there are considerably fewer, um, DVDs like standalone players. There are a few companies that make 4k, uh, Blu-ray players. The big ones don't, I think Samsung stopped. Um, I think there are a couple others that stopped as well, but the, um, there's still some, I think Panasonic still makes one. Um, but yeah, most people who watch, uh, Blu-ray or 4k Blu-ray content do it on a PlayStation five or on an Xbox series X. Um, but, but with Xbox, the thing you'll notice is they're actually pushing their series S, which is a, uh, basically just a box with a hard drive and a GPU in it. And it's, it's doesn't have an optical drive. They just didn't right. put it in there cause it's expensive, right? It adds an extra $200 to the cost of the box to put an optical drive in it. So it's why we see laptops don't come with CD-ROM drives anymore or DVD drives. Um, it's why, you know, video game systems are trying to get rid of it. It's, it's a cost that if they can cut because people don't value it, they will. And so it's a bummer. I'm not getting rid of mine. No. <laughs> um, I feel like there's going to be a resurgence. I think that, I think that people, and, and again, maybe it's going to have to just wait for Gen Z to actually have a little bit more buying power. But I think that, that we're going to see more of a resurgence of physical media because people are going to start getting annoyed at not being able to, watch the thing that they want to watch on their platforms. And like, I, you know, we're already considering getting rid of several of our platforms that, uh, yeah. that we just don't really use. Like, what do I watch on Netflix? Literally the great British bake off. And that's it. Yeah. And yeah, and that's the thing. What, what happens after, you know, we'll, we'll see uh, right before we started recording this, uh, it was announced that maybe there's a deal with SAG-AFTRA and, and we'll see how that changes the, what's being made for for streaming but uh i i do think you're right that there's going to be this thing where all streaming services are going to have to cut back a lot and people are going to realize wait but there's this this thing i want that i can't find anywhere and hopefully a little bit of a bump i'm i'm hoping because i i think that being able to own a thing as opposed to a license for a thing is an important thing that was a lot of time yes thing (laughs) Well, so uh, I would recommend everybody buy the 4K Ultra uh, HD version of the movie The Thing by John Carpenter. Um, but also, uh, I have some good news. I have Ooh. some good news to follow up with your hopes. Uh, 4K Blu-rays have just had their best sales quarter of all time in the first half of 2022. Um, blue 4K Blu-rays accounted for 11.6% of total sales. Um, now, that was last year, but still, trend is going up. In fact, I think for... Um, this past for all of 2022, um, ultra HD 4k Blu-rays accounted for almost 14% of all Blu-rays sold. Um, another good note is that collector's editions are driving growth. So year over year unit sales rose 85%, which is pretty great. So if people are like me and, and Devin, like you, um, and we like the collector's version. So Criterion, Shout Factory, um, Arrow, all those you know companies that put out this really great type of content. Those are up. And then finally, um, that Circana report that I mentioned earlier mentions that uh, still 26% of households bought a disc um, in the last six months. And households with children under the age of 18 are far more likely to have done so um, 
39% of those bought a DVD or Blu-ray in the last six months. So I think that that's a big part of it too, is if you have kids and they just like gotta watch Moana or whatever it is, right. Then, then, and, and all of a sudden you have these platforms that are just removing stuff willy nilly. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. My child needs to be able to watch Scooby-Doo and this specific episode and that they will lose their mind if they can't watch Scooby-Doo. So I have to just own it because I can't, you can no longer be trusted Netflix to keep or Max or whatever to keep the things that we want to watch. There was a point in time where Cassius really wanted to watch the Magic School Bus, which had been on Netflix for Mm -hmm. a long time. And then they got rid of the seasons two through five of the original series. And like, so now we have to deal with a meltdown because Netflix decided to fuck us. I was going to say, or or you could wind up like my sister where um, her son, six now, I think five at the time, obsessed with Spider-Man, just wanted to watch Into the Spider-Verse over and over and over again, kept going to Amazon. Didn't My sister didn't realize each time he was renting it. Oh, and no. So like $100 of Spider-Verse rentals later realized that that was not how it, it should be. Oh, yeah. No. Um, yeah. I think and, it's also interesting because like, you know, the it's it's older stuff, but like we kind of also prefer I, I, I like to have the kids watch kind of older stuff um as well. And like they've removed most of the Looney Tunes, like yeah. Bugs Bunny cartoons yeah. off of Max. Like there's still a few of them, but um like most of the like original and it's like that stuff that's also worth keeping around. There are things from our childhood that are like are actually like I want my kids to be able to watch and I just I I don't know where I'm going to find it or where it's going to be consistent culturally yes financially for them you know they they feel like it's not for whatever reason and well you you get that tax write-off yeah without break without without breaking NDAs I've done research for streaming services and it is it is just it's new they do not they there was a time where they thought we should have a big library that will drive right. it. And they, their research shows, sadly for us, that is not what drives subscribing. It, it is it is all new content and very niche new content. So that being right. said, I did see one other fun fact in a, in a Wired article. This was from two years ago. But it said 5 million Americans... Uh, bought a movie for the first time between April and June, 2021. Right. Um, so, and, and they, they were talking about DVD sales. So there, there are still people, although that doesn't, that actually seems high 5 million for the first time. So maybe that wasn't, but there are still people out there who are deciding to buy a thing. Yeah. It's all just people that are like 18 to 22 years old. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but um, yeah, but good. They should buy it. And, uh, there, there's one last question, um, that Jesse asked that I think, uh, ties into the movie really well. Um, in the movie, they have these, they keep doing top five lists, right? You know, top five songs on a Monday morning, top five breakup songs. And one that they asked was top five side one track ones 
And uh, Rob Gordon gives his answer. He throws like Nirvana's never mind on there, and they give him shit about that because it's like, could you be more obvious? How oh, about oh, how about, to, how about how about Beethoven track one Beethoven. side one of the Fifth Symphony? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I bring that up because Jesse, you asked why are CDs the size that they are, one hundred and twenty millimeters across? They uh-huh. were originally supposed to be one hundred and fifteen millimeters across supposed to be a little bit smaller but the executive in charge said that you had to be able to fit beethoven's fifth symphony on a single disc which was 76 minutes which required a 120 millimeter uh disc uh i i would like to it was the um uh sony executive i would like to thank uh michael eads uh, a regular listener and good friend of the show for mentioning that, um, I, I told him I was just going to say it and not validate it, but I, I 100% looked it up, and that is true. That is a true story. Um, they had to get it to 76 minutes in order to get Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on. Well, thank you, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that makes sense, that it, it's something completely arbitrary. Oh, sorry. But... Ninth Symphony, not Fifth Symphony. Ninth Symphony. But still, point being, Beethoven, he wrote music. He's cool. Good guy. <laughs> hung out with bill and ted i, I think I let's say i have he's on my bill and ted dvd that i have over there <laughs> yeah there you go well speaking of numbers let's talk um budget okay for budget this and box office yeah all right do you, you going to do like prices right rules for you guys guessing on what you think the budget was estimated budget i mean probably like 25 or something if that okay so four says 25 uh yeah i was gonna go I was going to go a little higher, so I'll just go 25 million and one. <laughs> 30 million. Yeah. 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 Cusack, who actually has a writing credit on this, um, he, does, he worked yeah. with the. Yeah, he worked with the writing team. So there was originally um, a writer on... So obviously, this is based off the novel Nick Hornby, as we mentioned before. So he has a writing credit because uh, he wrote the the novel. And then you also have Steve Pink and D.V. DeVicentis. Together, they had also written on Gross Point Blank. So and, he and John uh, Cusack are buddies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are all like friends of John Cusack, who like it was recommended that they like bring in Cusack and this like writing team. The director, the director Stephen Frears, had worked with Cusack before on The Grifters, which was produced by our uh, our professor Petty Resky and edited by our professor John Tintori. Correct. And and also, by the way, if you if you told me we're bringing in the writers of Gross Point Blank, I'm never going to complain about that because that is a sure such a movie. good movie. Opening weekend, this film brought in 6.4 million for domestic. And then Seems gross right. domestic. <laughs> yeah, gross domestic was 27 million. And then worldwide gross was 47.1 million. But it did really well on DVD. Yeah, I was about to say, but like, but DVD sales mm-hmm. were the thing. It's like if you if you spent 30 to make 47 theatrically, you weren't feeling bad because you knew you were gonna get twice that on DVD, probably. Like can, can right, I, and like almost certainly in syndication as well. Sure. Can I also add one more thing about the problem with the death of DVD? It's one of the it's one of the two major reasons why they don't make studio comedies anymore. Because if you think to like the early two thousands, you know, a movie like Anchorman it could do okay in the theaters, but then everyone in college bought the DVD because you had to rewatch right. Anchorman one hundred and fifty thousand times. And right. that 
that and so comedies don't have that ancillary revenue stream anymore and they have to make it theatrical and comedies traditionally don't they but like but anyone who was in college long in tail, the thousands yeah. had an anchorman dvd had a wedding crashers dvd had an old school dvd right like yep. these were on constant repeat. office space mm-hmm. office space yeah so um it's uh yeah it, it it's also changed it's changed the way these movies are made which is uh which is also also said and then as you said, things go away, including, I think, the High Fidelity TV show, which I thought was great. We didn't really talk about it. I thought the yeah, High Fidelity I... TV show was fantastic, and it didn't get a second season because there were issues about rights and who actually owned it, and it was successful for Hulu, but they didn't own enough of it, and so they didn't give it a second season, which is a shame. So in terms of uh, reviews and reception, um, it... Uh, yeah. Pretty pretty well received on Rotten Tomatoes. It was a uh, ninety one on the Tomato Meter and uh, ninety for the audience score, and seventy nine out of a hundred on Metacritic. A C plus on Cinema Score. That's yeah, probably not surprising. Only because that's like people who watched it in theaters and were like, you know, what's your immediate grade on this? And probably a lot of people are like that. Rob dude's a uh, real jerk. <laughs> I just feel like people weren't really talking about him being that much of a jerk. I listened or listened to, I read the transcript of an interview back in 1997 or 1996 uh, with Terry Gross. So it was talking mostly about the book, but I think the film was about to come out and they, they, even she, like she brought up some stuff about him being like, mm, not great in terms of trying to like teach his girlfriends about music, but, um, they didn't really get into like just the, just blatant misogyny of him calling like girls that reject him sluts and whores. Yeah. I, um, you know, I, I imagine that, uh, first of all, a lot of people who do cinema score stuff are a little bit older. They're the kind of people who will go see a movie and write down comic cards and stuff like that. So, um, maybe they had a little more world experience. Maybe they just yeah. were not like we were when we were in uh, high school and college and been like, yeah, this guy makes sense. He's cool. Well, your boy, Roger Ebert gave it four oh out of four stars. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he said, quote, watching high fidelity. I had the feeling I could walk out of the theater and meet the same people on the street and want to, which is an even higher compliment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe like 80%, I, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like a little bit of a backhanded compliment, I think, but uh, take it. <laughs> Roger Ebert's like, I could walk out right now and meet Bruce Springsteen playing guitar on the street. And I was surprised I wanted to meet yeah. you. I don't know. <laughs> so I think the movie holds up uh, in terms of at least the quality of the writing, the quality of like, it's an incredibly watchable movie. Um, I think that how you interpret the Rob character very much depends on where you are in your life, which is actually, I think, quite a a good sign. I think if you are um, showing this movie to a young male, keep eyes on them. <laughs> like they need to be shepherded through this process. It's like uh, it's like you know um, going on like a spirit quest. You have to have a guide. I think if you're going to try and tell a 19 year old, here's what your future holds, you want to guide them through this and be like, this is the worst possible outcome is turning into this guy. Let's not, let's not do that. Um, I really and, am curious yeah. about what Gen Z would say about this though. Like maybe that's the case or maybe, do maybe they would see through the bullshit. I don't know. I have like such optimism for them. 
I mean, I, I, you would hope, but like, I don't have optimism for much of anything. So who knows? It's hard to say. <laughs> uh, but, but I, I have optimism for the future of DVDs. I'm doing everything I can to help support them. I have, I'm looking at my, uh, bookshelf of a thousand dollars worth of DVDs right now. So uh, 4k Blu-rays that I bought in the last two years. So, you know, I'm trying, I'm doing my part. Well, a thousand dollars retail reselling. It's about three fifty. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I'm not reselling any of these. These are mine. I own yeah. them. You own them. Leave me alone. <laughs> Again, rewatching this, it was, it, it's definitely, definitely something that I think holds up. And despite how I feel about Rob Gordon, still holds up. Is still entertaining. And I think that, I mean, um, John Cusack's performance is fantastic. But I, I, every everybody else that's it. and we didn't even really get into kind of all of the other like big people that are in this, which is like Catherine and we Jones. Can't. Robbins, <laughs> we're not going to, but I'm just saying, I like have the to whole go to bed. cast. <laughs> I'm so tired. The whole cast, uh, it does really just a fantastic job, and it, it truly is just like this ensemble of people that I mean are just a pleasure to watch throughout the entire thing. So, definitely yeah. a recommend. Uh, recommend for me if you can find it anywhere. Yeah, totally. Same. Uh, go to Walmart, see if you can get it for five dollars in the DVD bin. <laughs> it's probably still there from uh, 2000s copy that's that's kicking around. Um, yeah, definitely recommend for me. Also recommend people buying Blu-rays, uh, for anyone who doesn't know criterion collection is 50% off at Barnes and Noble. I don't get any kickbacks from this. Although if criterion would like to sponsor this podcast, we will gladly accept it and I'll refer people to uh, buy your, your wonderful movies or just let you visit the closet. I just want to go to the closet. (laughs) I just want to go. And then Devin, what, uh, do you have any final thoughts on the film? Um, I, I, I still love it. It it, like, again, I, I agree with what was said about how the fact that Rob's character hits you at different points, uh, in your differently at different points in your life is a credit to how good the writing is. Um, uh, I wish the TV show got more seasons, but, uh, definitely if you have not seen high fidelity, let, let me know. Uh, how you feel about it, you know, um, somehow, I don't know how you're going to <laughs> Google search, uh, for just people know. named Devin start. I, I'm, I'm the only person with my name in the world that spells it this way. So I don't know, find me, find my letterbox and leave a comment on it. You know, are you, are you just Devin Landon on letterbox? I don't even know. I think so. <laughs> well, I, are you, I will are you say still that, that around Twitter. <laughs> I'm still, I'm that, still, Hey, don't dead name it. Um, no, yeah, I'm, I'm still on Twitter. I'm Devin Landon there. Um, I think I'm Devin Landon on Letterboxd. I don't know, but I'm Devin, you can search. Yeah. I'm Devin Landon on Letterboxd. Yeah. But so, uh, the good thing about Letterboxd, yeah, Letterboxd is a wonderful little film community. And I think sort of speaks to the last little bit of what I was getting at, which is it's really wonderful to have a place to talk to people um, about the films that you like. And Best Buy was never going to be that. Best Buy is absolutely just a big box retailer. You go in, you buy a DVD, you go home. But like the the art itself is is really um, the thing that connects people. And and the bummer, the, the big bummer about this is we've become so isolated in society. We have our streaming services. We have our music services. They're all disconnected from other people. There's no water cooler talk. There's no, I went to the theater and saw this big, you know, release this weekend. Like we just kind of do our own things in our own little bubbles and have such small communities now. 
Um, I think one of the things that was great about the 2000s when DVD culture was alive and booming was the sharing it with people. It was, it was experiencing it with other people, your friends and, and family. Um, and so any amount of that you can hang on to, you know, is, is something worth, worth looking to do. Um, we got a little of it this year with Barbie and Oppenheimer, but I want to keep it going. So yeah, if you want share, to talk share about, your love, if you want to talk about the movie, meet me on St. Mark's on the sidewalk in front of where Kim's video used to be. <laughs> we'll talk about movies. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Devin, for, for joining us. Sorry, sweetie, you were going to yes, close this Thank episode, you. But... I was going to say the exact same thing. Thank you so much for joining us, Devin. We're so happy to have you. Happy to get your perspective on both uh, the new story and this film. Happy to, happy to be here. Love getting to talk. Please feel free to uh, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at the Crosscut Pod. Uh, it's our only social media and uh, rarely updated this in these days. So here's the actual thing you can do: is just tell a friend if you like this podcast. Uh, send them a link to this episode. Send it to their texts so that they'll actually get it. They'll click a link. It'll go to their podcast app. Easy peasy. Uh, let them listen and then they'll enjoy it. And then they'll wonder uh, why we're so complaining about a film that we love so much. Uh, It'll it'll be a great introduction to this podcast. So uh, thanks everybody. See you next time. Bye.